Good morning to you all. I'm very honored to, to see so many faces um, so early on, on a Saturday morning in Keeble. Um, I'm going to take uh, you through what has been a, a real adventure in, uh, in research over the last decade, um, centered mostly on uh, the Sahara and uh, taking in a number of, of projects of all sorts of sizes uh, over the years, um, about all in all about 10 years now. But uh, because I, I don't suppose you woke up this morning thinking about the Sahara, and because uh, I don't suppose uh, very many people have actually been into the middle of, of this place, I, I thought I'd start by showing you what I was doing uh, when I, I probably should have been writing up my, my defil um, in the mid to, to late 90s. I, I found a way of dealing with the December and January low cloud that tends to hang over the Thames Valley, and that solution was... Uh, in the form of a, an old truck that I'd driven up from Cape Town um, earlier and had parked up in, in Oxford somewhere. And uh, I worked out that the only countries that I could afford to run this old machine in was uh, North African countries where fuel's very cheap. Uh, and I also worked out that it takes less than a few days to drive down into the Sahara. So here we are on one of these trips uh, on what's grandly called the Trans-Saharan uh, Highway near a little town called Hassi Belgabor. You can see it on the right. That's all it is, is this uh, truck stop. Sells bread and uh, water if, you, if you're lucky, but no fuel. And it's the sort of place that if you're ever flying across the continent and you look out of the window of an airplane and you see one single lonely pinprick of light and a mass of nothing, that's the kind of thing that Hassi Belgabor is. Anyway, we were heading south from there, and uh, after another day or two, you pass the very last of the nomad, nomads as you get into the central Sahara. These are the real thing that still exists in that untouched uh, part of the world. And from there, essentially, the roads run out, and uh, it's trackless country all the way across to the northern edge of the Sahel. And it really is the most magnificent land that you can ever imagine. So it's the sort of thing that was a, a great panacea for a, a hard year in Oxford, where you can sleep under the stars day, day in, day out uh, on these trips and be bothered by absolutely no one. Just by way of orientation, most of the trips that we did were in Libya and Algeria, um, sometimes further south into Niger and Mali and even Mauritania. And uh, perhaps the most interesting trip of all that I did was across the southeastern bit of Algeria, across this cut line into Niger, into the northern Tenere, and then across uh, through to Agadez and down to the capital of Niger. And that took only about two and a half weeks, remarkably, from Oxford, without really chasing our tails at all. And this part of, of the Sahara really is one of the most beautiful parts of the planet. So here we are at the edge where the roads run out, studying the maps very carefully. It was pre-satellite phone, pre-GPS days, and so we were just driving on bearings and a compass. And this is the sort of country that unfolds in front of you. It's much more varied than you might imagine. Uh, there are parts of it where there are sand sheets that run for hundreds and hundreds of kilometers. And the northern Tenere is, uh, is one such place. It's essentially featureless. And it's a bit like moon travel, in a sense. Um, now and again, you run into these little accumulations of sand. And on this evening, we potted over a ridge and camped out in this little basin. And one of the things that's nice to do at the end of, of a day's drive is just to get out of this uh, old car and walk about a bit. And we walked along the fringe of this short, old shoreline. 
and every second or third bit that you might stand on or kick turned out to be a little artifact, an ostrich egg shell, a bit of pottery, an arrowhead. It was really quite extraordinary. Probably untouched uh, for a few thousand years, three or four thousand years. In other parts of the Sahara, it's very stony and expansive, as you can see in, in this image, running up to the Tassili Escarpment in southeastern Algeria. Uh, and when you get on top of these uh, rock outcrops and look over the desert, you get some sense of just how enormous it is. On that trip that we did down to Niger, we just drove on a south-southeast bearing for 800 kilometers across this, uh, this stuff until we got the next landmark. It, it really is a bit like uh, space travel. Um, where all of these elements come together, the Sahara really is at its most beautiful. So where the mountains, the sand sheets, those big gravel plains uh, 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 converge. Um, and again, this is in the southern edge of, uh, of Algeria. Now, um, because I'm working in the geography department, and because we do things together, and because climate science isn't just an office, and because geomorphology isn't just the next door office, one of the things that was going on in the department at the time was that uh, Professor Andrew Gowdy had a deep interest in dust, in dust storms, and in what we call mineral aerosols. Um, and about that time, um, while I was uh, doing all these trips in the Central Sahara, a, a new data set emerged which was measuring the presence of that dust in the atmosphere. It was doing that by way of an accident from a satellite that was actually designed to measure ultraviolet radiation and thereby ozone. But there was a huge anomaly that emerged in some parts of that detection, which showed us this big dust field over the central Sahara. And you can see the primacy of that region with respect to the rest of the world. It really is the key source of, of dust um, on the planet. So Andrew Gowdy, in the generous way that he used to do things, uh, quickly in, engaged with the climate scientists in the department, and he said, is this real? And what's causing it? Um, it was the, really the first time that we'd seen this expanse of, of emission across uh, the planet as a whole. So what are we talking about when we're detecting something like, like this dust? Well, I'll give you what the textbooks were saying at the time. And I'm pleased to say we've been able to move these sorts of definitions along quite, a, uh, quite some way. We thought that the dust was, was very small particles of, of essentially soil in the atmosphere, uh, measured uh, in microns. So a micron is a thousandth of a millimeter. So very tiny particles. And uh, most of them a fraction of a, a thousandth of a millimeter. Um, we thought that essentially they, they peaked round about six uh, one thousandth, thousandth of a millimeter, and that they stayed in the atmosphere just for a few hours. Um, we thought that their influence on weather and climate were, was strong, but we were worried that that influence depended quite heavily on what these particles were like. And we didn't have much of a clue, uh, to be honest. So when we, uh, when we saw those, uh, those maps of um, the accumulation of dust in the atmosphere, we essentially wrote down all the possibilities that this material uh, could have by way of importance on the science. Um, it wasn't clear, for instance, whether the presence of this material in the atmosphere actually makes the atmosphere hotter or cooler. The cooling bit comes because it has the potential to reflect sunlight. The heating bit comes because it absorbs greenhouse, uh, as a greenhouse gas might, the, uh, 
radiation that comes off the, the Earth. But just when, which of those two terms wins out really depends on the color of the material, how big it is, how high it is in the atmosphere. And about that sort of stuff, we had absolutely no idea. The chemists were telling us that it may be very important in fertilizing the oceans, so uh, bringing iron to the oceans to help the phytoplankton um, blooms. Uh, some of the cloud physicists uh, speculated that it was important in interfering with clouds, though they weren't sure whether it, it promoted or reduced cloud cover, and then on to things like hurricanes. Um, but as Andrew Gowdy pointed out, it was important just to know what this, uh, where this material was coming from and how it all worked simply from a geomorphological perspective. So we did something very simple. We, we took that map, here it is, that, that mean annual long-term uh, calculation of the presence of this material. We put a box around the biggest bit, and that turned out to co-locate with something called the Bordelli Depression in Chad. And we started at looking at uh, other sorts of satellite data, and we noticed these enormous clouds of white coming off uh, the depression in northern Chad from time to time. So we decided, uh, once we'd uh, investigated all we possibly could from the satellite data, and here you see what that basin looks like from space, looking north. So uh, Egypt is up in the northern corner here. This is the Tbesti Mountains in the northwest corner of Chad and the low Enedi topography uh, ridges of Chad in the east. And here we have uh, an enormous paleo lake, perhaps the biggest lake, uh, freshwater lake in the world at some point. Um, and it seemed like a promising setting for liberating this material into the atmosphere. <clears throat> so we put together a program called the Bedelli Dust Experiment. We applied for some funding, and we got a very generous 12,000 pounds from the Royal Geographical Society. And uh, we went off to the Bedelli with very simple aims. Is it really dusty? Have the satellites got this right? Because remember that they measure radiation, and you have to convert that radiation into something that you, you're interested in. Um, and if it was dusty, why is it so incredibly dusty? So we went off there, essentially, on a mission to collect this, this data. By way of orientation, uh, Chad, in, the, uh, in, in some of the uh, literature, the um, FCO equivalent in America, for instance, describes Chad as a very landlocked country. I like the very. <laughs> so there it is. Um, there's the capital, Indomina, which you see on this map here. And there's this very promising-looking track that goes up to Fire Lajeau in the north that we followed uh, across the, the Jurab. This is what it looks like on the ground. The track runs out after the first day, and then essentially you're just making your own way through these sorts of dune fields. It's difficult driving, particularly in, in laden uh, vehicles where we have to take everything that we need, all the, the diesel, uh, water, and so on. And uh, on the third day, going through this lot, we essentially made progress around about five kilometers an hour, which uh, took some doing. Here we, um, is one of the reasons for that see, trying to dig out our donkey from the sand. This was the load-carrying uh, Toyota. However, after uh, the third day, we found the only tree within several hundred kilometers, which was a good move, because it ended up uh, essentially allowing us to stay there. I really don't think we would have been able to put up with the harsh environment if it hadn't been for this tree at Shisha, which featured in uh, one of the Libyan uh, uh, Niger, uh, Chadian battles of the late, late 1980s when uh, Gaddafi was having a go 
further south uh, in, in Africa. And so there's armaments and stuff just all over the place uh, around, around this campsite. Uh, so there's our tree. Um, this is this very white stuff that you see from space, which is the fossils, essentially, of the beasts that used to live in that very, very large freshwater lake. And this is what blows off into the wind. Um, and we set up some instrumentation. You can see our, our very high-tech sandbagging equipment to anchor it all down. And we put on the ground some of the sorts of instruments that the satellites fly. So we had instruments from the satellites looking down, as well as the same instruments looking up. And we made the, make then something of a sandwich of the atmosphere to try and figure out what's in the middle. And we had an array of these sorts of poles across the depression measuring uh, how much material moved. Um, not much happened for about 10 days, and we started getting really worried about what we were to report to the Royal Geographical Society when we returned. Uh, it was pristine conditions, and we were able to play with a frisbee or a tennis ball most afternoons out in the desert. But there was always the promise that something massive happened there. These dunes, these Barkin dunes, are about a kilometer across, uh, horn to horn, and they're made of this diatomite material. Uh, so there was some indication that, that things uh, were on the go. We worked incredibly hard there. Um, there were only four of us doing the climate observations, and we stayed up uh, every night uh, in, in routines, in shifts, essentially, through um, the three weeks that we were there, releasing these balloons every three hours or so uh, during the night. The balloons were bought from the party shop in Oxford, um, <laughs> near, the, near the, the covered market, um, and we attached little uh, 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 cups, polystyrene cups, to the bottom of the uh, balloons and put a cake candle in the bottom of that. And we could track that using this theodolite for 20 minutes, half an hour at night, until the balloon was, was way off into the distance. And from that, through some maths, you can retrieve the, the wind data. That's what the tree looked like on about the fourth last day before we left. And this was when I was brave enough to go and have a look. Um, we were hiding in what remained of our little shelter during that time. So we were lucky enough to get uh, an event, um, which was one of these very large uh, dust storms in the Bedeli. We went out uh, to work in the middle of the basin during that event. The visibility then was about 10 to 20 meters during that storm. This is what it looked like afterwards. These are our, our tents and so on. We, we found stuff 10 miles downwind uh, that had been blown out of the camp. And there's my postgraduate, uh, Sebastian Engelsteiner, digging out his kit from underneath the tent. It, the, the amount of, of material that moved during the course of those two or three days was just unbelievable. There was many, many tons of it. This is what it looked like from space on that uh, uh, in, in event in March 2005. That was our base camp just near the leading edge of, of the event. Um, it was a good call to camp upstream rather than in the middle. As it was, I coughed for about three months after that lot. So um, I don't know if I would have survived if we'd been uh, down this end of the story. These are what the winds look like, the first ever data to come out of the dustiest place on the planet, as we now know. Um, and you can see that as, the, as you move through those three days of the storm, the wind goes through the cyclic pattern where it peaks mid-afternoon or so, early afternoon, and then dies down uh, to almost uh, the level at which you're not going to move the material uh, during the, the evening, only to recover the next day. 
because of that, we were able to do all sorts of work on the climate. We were able to find out what causes these sorts of things. And uh, using some statistical methods, we found that the wind essentially ramps up over this basin when you get one of those big ridging highs, the, the ridging of the Libyan high uh, across the northern Mediterranean. And that ramps up the pressure gradient and blows these very strong winds uh, down uh, across the basin. We did some work also to find out uh, why there's this modulation as you go through the days, uh, through the morning. Um, and essentially at night, from that uh, balloon data, from those uh, toy balloons that we brought in, in Oxford, we were able to work out that there was a very strong wind uh, above the surface, even if it was calm at the surface. So this is essentially um, just before sunrise. Um, and then as the heating gets switched on during the day, as you move through the morning, turbulence sets in in the atmosphere and it essentially fetches the strong winds from the above surface layers and mixes them down uh, to the surface so that you get the strong wind profile all the way through at the lowest uh, few hundred meters of the atmosphere. And then that very strong momentum gets delivered to the material at the surface. And uh, here's a time series of the uh, uh, balloon data. The red stuff is the fast wind and you can see it pulsing on uh, through the mornings um, as the heating brings that very strong wind down to the surface. So the answer to the question, is it dusty, uh, was an absolute yes. And thankfully, the reasons for the, the explanation for why it was dusty were very simple. Um, the wind from those ridging uh, highs gets channeled between the Tibesti Mountains and the Inedi Ridge. That ramps up the wind speed by 30% or more. And it gets very neatly focused down onto this paleo lake at the, the um, southern end of that channel, as it were. So you've got the two perfect conditions, the, the transport mechanism and the emission mechanism in the wind, brought about by that very large scale synoptic pattern and the channeling of the winds, and then the focus down onto this lake basin at the bottom. So essentially, it's a perfect factory. No surprise, then, that it is indeed the dustiest part of the world. We did some uh, simulations and some modeling after that and calculated by releasing millions of particles into a model uh, around the uh, Bedeli region that it would take about 10 days for this material to reach South America. And quite a lot of it actually does. Um, we picked up the presence of, of this material in the Caribbean from arrays of sampling specially put there to, to measure the Saharan dust. And there's an argument still on the boil as to whether the chemistry that comes out of the Bedeli is important for the trees in the Amazon, one of those nice linkers uh, across the, the planet. And Nature were very kind to write up a, a little article about uh, our adventures in Chad um, at the time. Now, um, once we got back from Bedeli and uh, had written up the, the key papers, we began to look back at those uh, satellite images uh, once more. Um, here you see a, a closer-up view uh, of the um, Sahara, again using this satellite that's actually designed to measure ozone rather than dust. It does a nice job for us anyway. Interesting also that the measurements of ozone were essentially an accident too, the first measurements that came out of the South Pole. So here, a deliberate attempt to measure ozone ends up with an accident in measuring dust. And I, I'm not sure what accident's waiting downstream for the dust itself. Anyway, the, the Bedelli Depression, this bullseye, shows up very clearly. 
But we were also interested in this region over the triple point of Mali, um, Algeria, and Mauritania, which as we scroll through the seasons, this is January, February, and March, uh, one of the better times uh, to go to the Sahara from the perspective of, of nice, uh, clear views. As you ro roll through the seasons, this is April, May, June, into the summer, you can see that Bedeli backs down a bit, and this region here becomes the largest source on the planet. And we had the same questions uh, about this source. Is it real? Is it uh, one point source like the Bedeli Depression? We were rather hoping it was going to be. And, and what causes the dust emission from that part of the world? So we began then to, um, to cook up a project which ended up being called Fennec, which is uh, essentially a desert fox. Fennec isn't a, an acronym. We got a bit tired of, of using acronyms in, in climate science. Um, and this turned into much more of a, 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 of a climate project rather than simply a dust project because that part of the Sahara is a very, very intriguing place. It's, it's one of the hottest parts of the planet during the, the summer months. The atmosphere uh, that turns over during the day is about five to six kilometers deep. And on a summer's day in Oxford, it's probably no more than a few hundred meters. So it's a furnace, essentially, at the surface that, that turns the atmosphere upside down. It's also, we think from the satellites, the uh, largest source of, of dust anywhere in the world during those summer months. And it eclipses the uh, Chadian source by, by some. And it's also, uh, we think, the seat of an important low-pressure system which governs the way our weather in the UK and Europe works, but also the West African monsoon. Now, one of the strong motivations for this project was that when we took a look at uh, weather and climate models, they all told us a slightly different story. Um, and slightly is probably being quite generous to their capabilities. So if you look at the top row here in this panel, uh, this is the temperature uh, plot over the North African region in, in the summer months. And these are just two models. These are models that we use uh, for, for weather forecasting and for, for climate research. And they tell a very different story. They are six, seven, eight degrees C different from each other in terms of how hot they want that central area to be. One of them wants an enormous low pressure system over the core of the Sahara, and the other isn't really interested in that low pressure at all. Now, the difficulty is we have no basis really for saying we like the one on the left or the one on the right because it comes from the Met Office has got to be right. There isn't really a scientific way of approaching the problem. And that's because if you plot up where we have data from the Sahara, it's all conveniently arranged around the edge. Not surprising. It takes a fool like a staff member in the geography department to want to get into the middle and to recover the information. So essentially, there's no data to confront those, those models with. Um, and that was a key driver behind the uh, Fennec program. Um, so just to consolidate on, on our, our, our interest, the, the West African monsoon system, the, the rains that come to all those countries, Mauritania, Burkina Faso, Mali, Niger, Chad, in a string across the southern fringe of the Sahara, is brought essentially by water that comes in the air off the Gulf of Guinea uh, in towards the Sahara. It's a very low flow. It's about a kilometer deep in the atmosphere. And that stuff is drawn in by that low pressure system over the Sahara. And you can see with some models wanting that low pressure system to be incredibly strong, 
and others not wanting it at all, the way in which that uh, West African monsoon gets handled in any of our weather and climate models is pretty poor. Um, and the only way to solve the problem then is to find out what they should be doing by getting those met observations that, that don't exist. And of course, uh, with the butterfly effect, the, the idea that the weather in one part of the world affects all the other parts of the world, if we manage to fix what's going on in the Sahara, it'll certainly fix what's going on in Europe. And out of that comes an improvement in the sorts of weather and climate forecasts that we have. Um, of course, there's a, a very interesting dusty element to all of this, and that was the bit of the project that I was most heavily in, involved with. Um, and I'm going to scroll through a, a sequence of, I think it's hourly time steps, uh, from the satellite uh, over the Sahara. Uh, so here's essentially the core of the summertime dust source of the Sahara, and this is from June uh, last year. Uh, clear stuff is essentially the surface, so you can see features of the Tassili escarpment, those photographs that I showed earlier. There's the uh, uh, Tibesti Mountains in Chad and so on. The red stuff, you have to get used to this a little bit, is, is cloud. It's deep thunderstorm cloud. Uh, the black fringes of it are, are ice, and the pink is dust. So we start in this little uh, hourly time step in... Uh, Burkina Faso, there's a storm which uh, evolved, a fairly modest storm actually, given the standards of the uh, thunderstorms in the West African monsoon. There was a storm that evolved in that, uh, on, on the southern Sahara uh, fringe, and it rained out of that storm. And one of the very interesting things that happens, given how high the, the clouds develop in the Sahara, is that they chuck out this uh, rain uh, on the downdraft side of the storm. And because the air is so dry, and because the rain comes out so high above the surface, most of that rain evaporates before it gets to the surface. And in that evaporation process, it loses an enormous amount of heat. And so it arrives at the surface dry and very cold as this big wedge of cold air. And then that runs across the featureless desert surface for hundreds of kilometers, raising dust as it goes. And if ever you see one of these things coming at you, it's the most magnificent sight. Essentially, it's just a, it's a, it's a wedge of dust coming straight at you, left and right, for hundreds of kilometers, as far as the eye can see. And that's one of these uh, systems here, rolling out over the, the desert surface into southern Algeria uh, from that uh, convection over the West African monsoon. Um, this happens quite a lot. But what happened on this occasion is really quite intriguing. So let's uh, follow it at these hourly time steps. You can see the uh, dust is leaving the cloud behind. But along the edge of the cloud, there's more, sorry, along the edge of the dust storm, there's more of that cloud developing. Um, and you can see the convection then essentially likes to grow, in this case, along the boundary of the clear sky and the dust itself. And you can see over a period of time, uh, those storms build. This one here is particularly active up in uh, southeastern Algeria. And that storm itself then spews out another dust front, which you can see racing away in the northwest corner here. And that skids out over the uh, Tanner's Rift region, a very flat, featureless uh, gravel plain of southern Algeria, um, and separates again from the parent storm that gave birth to it. But before long, you see the telltale clouds beginning to to, to develop again along the edge where you get the strongest gradients of temperature. And those storms then begin to develop 
And as we move through the hourly time steps, you can see them throwing out their own dust in this huge arc running all the way across Mauritania into Western Sahara and Morocco, essentially continental scale uh, feature. And you can see that arc of, of, uh, of dust issuing westwards towards the Atlantic. This stuff ended up in Scandinavia a few days later. <laughs> and it began life in Burkina Faso off a very modest storm. And it seamlessly transited to central Sahara. It really is uh, a celebration of scales of, of what's possible, given the, the microscopic scale of cloud physics and the tiny, tiny dust particles that are doing all of this. It's a celebration of scales that goes from you know, a few thousandths of a millimeter right up to the continental, transcontinental scale. So our broad phenic aims then were to go and understand what's, what's happening in this core part of the Sahara, to go and fetch the data, to find out uh, what the atmosphere actually looks like there for the first time, and, and to try and fix those weather and uh, climate forecast models to make them perform better. Uh, to do that, we, we had several components. First, we established more than 30 tons of equipment on the ground in the central Sahara. Uh, we had two key sites. Um, the more important of the two was at Borj uh, Mokhtar, which is on the Algerian-Mali uh, border, a little town, essentially, that's set up to smuggle goods across the, the border, um, and petrol goes south and cigarettes go north. Um, and that was before the drugs trade started. I think it's, it's got into something more lucrative since. But it's a tiny settlement. To give you some idea, it's 600 kilometers from the nearest road. So it's essentially out over the, uh, the Tanner's Rift uh, plains of the central Sahara. And we had another one of these sites out at Zurat in, in Mauritania along a similar latitude. <clears throat> the idea then was to put some instrumentation down where the satellites were telling us uh, that dust essentially collected and where that heat low, which plays such an important part in the West African monsoon, is gathered. So there are our super sites at uh, Borj Mokhtar um, in, on the Algerian-Mali border. Uh, we also set up uh, a number of automatic weather stations uh, across the, the um, Sahara. They're still there. They essentially just plonked in the desert, and they've been there for nearly three years now, transmitting data to satellite every six hours. Um, and you see these streaks across the, the map, the blue and the red and the green streaks, were aircraft data that I'll, I'll tell you a little bit <coughs> more about in, in a moment. So more about the ground uh, observations at Borj Mokhtar. Um, we had a huge array of instrumentation, easily the best uh, set of instruments that have ever uh, been parked in the Sahara. We had a, a LIDAR, um, which is a laser radar, if you want. It, it uh, shines a, a laser beam and then detects the attenuation of that laser as it goes through the atmosphere. And very cleverly, it can tell you about winds and, 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 and dust. Uh, we had a SODAR, which is a machine that emits noise to find out what the wind's doing. We had balloons, again, that went off every four or so hours. We had uh, an enormous mast that was put up to measure um, the fluxes of temperature and, and radiation and, and so on. Um, it was an enormous struggle uh, to put all of this out in the middle of the desert. Um, to give you some idea, um, most of this kit lay 
in customs in Algeria at the airport for four long months, up until the moment uh, that essentially the project couldn't go forward um, if it weren't released. Um, the Algerian uh, Meteorological Agency did an absolutely marvelous job in helping us deploy this stuff across the Sahara. And without them, it, it really wouldn't have, have been possible. Um, these are the automatic weather stations that are essentially plonked out in the desert. It shows you how lonely it is there. They're not hidden behind a bush or a, a, or a, a building or anything. They're just in the middle of nowhere. And uh, they've essentially been left alone uh, all that time. Um, we had, uh, very fortunately, the use of the instrumented aircraft from the UK. And I can very proudly say that um, the UK is the only, uh, the only nation that's got the capacity to take an aircraft, an instrumented climate aircraft, and fly it just above the surface in the Sahara. And we flew that aircraft. We had 200 hours of flying time, all in all. And we flew it at 150 feet over the desert surface for hours and hours and hours, getting the very best data that you can imagine. Um, at times when we couldn't fly low, we could uh, throw things out of the back. Um, so we had uh, what we call dropsons, which are the inverse of those helium-filled or hydrogen-filled balloons. Those essentially float down on a parachute behind the plane. And the plane's geared up to measure perhaps 100 variables uh, of the atmosphere many, many uh, times a second. So here are the flight paths. Uh, we flew in, in three uh, particular occasions. Um, Initially, the proposal was to fly out of Tamanrasset in southern Algeria, which would have been wonderful because uh, it would have allowed us to collect data almost immediately. But uh, we were constrained to fly out of the Canaries and out of uh, Morocco, which meant that we had quite a lot of transit time before we actually got to the theater where we wanted to fly. It was a, it was a very interesting experience organizing those flights because one has 40 to 50 million pounds worth of aircraft parked on the runway. You have a finite number of hours that you can fly the thing for. And we're there, essentially, to collect data on what exists in the Sahara. But at the same time, we have to file a flight plan of where we want to go in an area that's essentially the size of North America. Um, and we have to file that flight plan 24 hours in advance based on very shaky forecasts. And the last thing you want to do is go out in this multi-million pound aircraft to an area of the Sahara where nothing's happening, where there's nothing really of any climate interest. Um, and each flight costs around 30 to 40,000 um, pounds in the fuel and the maintenance costs. Um, so it's, it's a very edgy uh, process putting together those flight plans and, and knowing what to do and where to take it. In one of the months, we were joined by the French aircraft. They run a Falcon F 20, which flies high and fast. So that provided a nice counterpart where we, we were able to fly low and slow they could come over the top and uh, find out what the top of the atmosphere uh, was doing. So here are the two aircraft. The, the UK aircraft is a BAE 146, so that's a high-winged aircraft with uh, four engines. Um, the inside of the aircraft has about uh, four or five scientists in it and about uh, 10 instrument scientists running all the instruments and two pilots up the front and then a mission scientist just behind the pilots to help them uh, through the flight in terms of where to go with the science. Here we are landing in, in one of the um, airports in the Canary Islands and then flying over one of the dunes in the southern edge of, uh, of Algeria, where Erg Shesh essentially runs out into Mauritania. This is what the inside of the aircraft looks like. It's, it's, uh, all the seats are removed, and uh, well, most of the seats are removed, and it consists of racks of instrumentation um, 
in the heavily modified uh, exterior of the aircraft where there's a LIDAR, there's uh, air intakes uh, and so on. And this is a view from the back where the mission scientists sit studying the data. It's a very difficult thing to do to sit for uh, two hours flying at 150 feet above the desert surface looking at a computer screen. You go green after about 10 minutes of, of doing that. And uh, the best place to be is up front sitting with the pilots because the air conditioning works best in that part of the plane. And you've got this nice vista in front of you, so you, you don't get as carsick as you were, as it were, um, as you do looking at, at one of these screens. And when you're in the front of that uh, aircraft, you're in constant uh, conversation with the pilots about uh, whether the flight height is right, whether the flight track is right, because often you're looking for things in the, the atmosphere. Um, and the pilots are, are looking all the time at the fuel because they have to get us home with, with the airplane, and they're doing calculations on uh, whether that's possible or not. And all the while, the radio is crackling with the instrument scientists saying, how much longer at low level, how much longer at low level. And you can always paint the shades of green given the urgency of the requests. And one of these runs, which was about two hours at low level, uh, I could tell that, that something was going to happen in the back. And meanwhile, there was a conversation going on with the pilots, and I was trying to eke out as much of the fuel as I could to get more data, because we were just getting to the really interesting bits. And we rolled out another 10 minutes of, of unexpected fuel. And I had to break the news to <laughs> one of the, the cloud physicists at the back who was uh, staring at this computer screen. And uh, that day, we didn't make it home dry, I'm afraid. But uh, <laughs> anyway, um, that's a view out onto the wing of the aircraft. And here, uh, on a rainy day, actually, in the desert in Morocco before one of the takeoffs. We wanted to know what was in this vast expanse. I feel very privileged to have had the chance, really, at this stage in climate science to be able to go somewhere and to ask that question, what's there? It's quite a remarkable thing. I never expected that in uh, my career. This is what the forecast data told us, that there was a huge mass of heat low over the Sahara, and we were able on that day to fly right through the middle of it twice. It was one of the best days I can remember. So what interesting things did we, we find? Um, I won't be able to cover um, nearly a quarter of this, but uh, just a few insights. This aircraft is beautifully equipped. It, it's got some magnificent instrumentation um, hanging off its wings that we used to find out what was flying in the air, what sort of dust particles were, were present. Um, most of the kit is actually designed to, to study clouds, but we were able to essentially modify that to understand what the soil particles were like in the atmosphere. And on one day, we went out into the central Sahara um, and flew into what really looked like a very modest dust storm as far as the satellite uh, data went. Um, but this is what it looked like outside the aircraft. The visibility essentially was zero. You could see nothing. It was incredibly murky. And these are some of the photographs that were taken by the, the laser monitoring um, on the aircraft. And recall that the, the definition of the soil particles it was about uh, six microns in the mean, so six one-thousandths of, of a millimeter on average. Um, and that the biggest ones we expected to see were about 50. You can see the scale is one millimeter on, on these slides. And we were measuring particles that were approaching a millimeter at three kilometers in the atmosphere. We're still looking for the physics that explain how that happened. And the atmosphere was absolutely laden with what we call boulders um, in, in the atmosphere. This sort of thing shouldn't exist. Um, and when we put all of our data together, uh, this is the 
particle size in the atmosphere, measured in microns along this axis here. It's a log scale, so getting out to 100 microns. You can see that our average was, was uh, up near 100 microns or so. And the black line is the data we recovered from the FENIC program. And it outstrips the sizes that have been measured uh, anywhere before. That has enormous implications for the way the atmosphere heats. It raises the heating by a factor of three or four. So essentially the atmosphere is able to get much hotter than at mid-levels than our climate models think is possible. So there's a lot of modification that's got to be done then to, to tweak those models to get the heating in the atmosphere right. And out of that comes all the sequencing which relates back to the West African monsoon and how that heat low draws the water in from the Gulf of Guinea. From the uh, surface data, we were uh, able to, to measure the winds. So this is wind speed along the bottom, and this is just a simply an hourly average of all the data that we collected at that magnificent site on the Mali-Algerian border, and then height in meters along this axis here. And you can see the interesting signature, very similar to what we found in the Bedeli, actually, where the wind speeds increase away from the surface to reach a peak uh, around about 300 and something meters above the surface. So those low-level jets, the same sort of structure that we saw um, over the Bedeli is, is very much in place over the um, central Sahara as well. One of the interesting things that we were able to do is take all the dust storm events that we measured during FANUC and work out why they existed. So here you can see some bar graphs which are essentially partitioning into atmospheric mechanisms uh, how those storms come about. Um, thunderstorm outflows account for nearly half of those dust storms. So those sort of haboob uh, walls of dust uh, events that we see rolling across the desert floor. Um, Low-level jets over the central Sahara do exist, but they're much more modest in their contribution. Um, and then there's a, a, a couple of other little mechanisms that make the dust happen. That's the good news. We figured that out. The bad news is that the weather and climate models that we have can't simulate these particular features in the atmosphere. So they miss more than half of the reason for the existence of that dust. And that's one of the things that we're trying to work on at the moment. Uh, because we've got all this ground data, we're able to use the satellites to learn a lot more now that we've packed up the kit in the central Sahara and brought it home. We're able to calibrate the satellites. We know when to believe them. And we're able to massage the data uh, to understand the processes that much better. And this is work that we've published recently, which sets out what the dust loadings look like from year to year in the central Sahara using a satellite that we've actually managed to ground truth. There's an incredible array of, of variability from year to year. So you get years that are hardly dusty and years that are massively dusty, like this one in 2004. Um, and in a really uh, cunning bit of computing done by one of my postgrads, Ian Ashpole, he took uh, these, these satellite images at 15-minute uh, time steps, and he wrote a very fancy bit of code that tracks the storms, the dust storms. So it picks out where the pink is, and it tracks the storms backwards. And he borrowed the concept from uh, work that's done in medicine to track blood clots around the, the body. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a tracing algorithm that's used in imaging uh, to do that, and that's where all of this started. Anyway, about three bottles of wine later, one, late one night, 
he figured out exactly how to do this, and he was able to trace back every storm that we have on the satellite record to a point, and he put a flag up at each of those points, and this is what that flag looks like, those, those flags look like, the frequency at which uh, points in the Sahara from which those dust storms emanate. And this now is informing the next bit of work because we want to go there and see what these places are made of. Um, of course, it's, all of this project was, was very difficult to do, given the insurgencies that were uh, taking place in the Sahara um, and giving, given the dangers there. I won't say too much about that, but I still can't get over the fact that we were flying 150 feet over Mali in the summer of 2012 and that we weren't the French Air Force. Um, I think we were very lucky with our, our timing. We just skidded in um, to be able to do that work. Uh, we have other projects on dust as well, and tomorrow afternoon, this is where I will be in Namibia on, <laughs> on the uh, Skeleton Coast. And that's all that I'm going to say this morning about dust, but I'd happily take some questions. <laughs>